Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host Robert Lamb is not with me today, so I am being joined by a guest, someone who will be familiar to longtime listeners of the show, our former producer and friend Seth Nicholas Johnson. How are you doing, Seth? Hello, everyone. I'm doing great. Happy to be back again. And uh, I'm glad to still be a part of the, uh, you know, Stuff to Blow Your Mind family. Oh, it's it's really great to have you back, man. Um, yeah, so the movie we're going to be talking about today is a movie you suggested, uh, Seth, one that I had never seen before, uh, and I am thrilled to discuss it today because it is so strange and so mm. interesting. Today's film is the 1968 psychedelic musical comedy Head, starring the TV musical act The Monkees, uh, and people may say they monkey around, but the important <laughs> thing to understand is that being a monkey is a pact with Satan, cursing you to a dreadful existence of meaninglessness and unfreedom, but also it's all for a laugh. You know, they monkey around a lot in this yeah. movie. <laughs> like, if if a reviewer simply wrote that after they saw the film, you know, these boys, they really monkey around. They'd be correct. That is what's happening throughout the entire 86 minutes of this film. But what's not true is that they're too busy singing to put anybody down. This movie sort of does put a lot of people and things down, including the monkeys and the creators of the monkeys. True. And everything that enabled the monkeys to happen and the fans of the monkeys and uh, war and consumerism and the broader culture and, and basically everything. It's a yeah. it's a shocking indictment of humankind. <laughs> it's very true. 
so I, I first of all had no idea this movie was going to have such dark threads running through it or that it would be as funny as it was. But um, I, I previously actually didn't know much about the monkeys. I, I didn't like grow up watching the show or anything. I knew, mm. you know, so the songs that would play on the radio and stuff. So uh, b- before we get into discussing the film itself, Seth, like what is your pre-existing relationship with the monkeys and did that have anything uh, to do with you suggesting this movie for today definitely uh i grew up on the tv show well obviously on the reruns uh, i wasn't around for the uh, the first round but um if folks don't know around the mid to late 80s uh mtv started replaying old uh, episodes of the monkeys because i believe it was like the uh 30th anniversary 20th anniversary something like that and uh when that happened yeah i guess it would have been the 20th anniversary 60s 70s 80s correct 20 the 20th anniversary on mtv they had a bunch of reunions and they played the TV TV show, and there was like a second wave of Monkey Mania, and this was um, kind of a big bolster not only to their record sales, some of their albums like re-entered the charts and stuff like that, but in addition to that, um, they started doing reunion tours. Like the Monkeys mm. came back in the uh, mid to late '80s, and um, I guess I was influenced by that as a as a small child because I watched those reruns and fell in love with it, and just like the um, the humor and the silliness, and honestly, also the quality of the music really won me over as a child, and um, it stuck with me for a long time. And eventually, when I did become old enough to start like you know buying my own albums and like caring about music. I was like, you know, some of these Monkeys albums are great. So then I went like through the effort of actually like learning the history of them and when they took over and started, you know, being in control of their own music compared with when they just had a bunch of like, you know, studio heads telling them what they had to do and what the difference between that sound was. Like I I really did a deep dive and and just to just to, you know, educate myself. And uh, yeah, I would call myself a big Monkeys fan. I have seen my personal favorite monkey, Mike Nesmith, in concert multiple times. Mm. And um, you know what? That's what I'll definitely say. I'm an enormous Mike Nesmith fan. And Mike (laughs) Nesmith used to be in the monkeys. That's what I'll say. Uh, It is surprising uh, when you go back and listen how good a lot of these songs are, like well-written pop tunes. Yeah, Um, for sure. And uh, I I honestly, Seth, thought you might say that your on-ramp to the Monkees was the uh, Smash Mouth cover in the Shrek soundtrack. (laughs) Which song was that? I'm a believer. I don't think I'm quite young enough for that. I'm sure the generation below us would definitely say that. But no, I I was brought on board with the reruns on uh, MTV back in the late uh, 80s. Yeah. Was that song, by the way, this would be a good segue to the fact that actually a lot of the great monkeys tunes that we know were written by people who would go on to become uh uh, great, you know, musicians, uh, well-known stars and songwriters in their own right. Uh, I think I'm a believer was written by Neil Diamond, wasn't it? I believe there is some truth to that. I can't remember if it was originally intended to be a Neil Diamond song originally, but yeah, there was a bunch of that kind of like flip-flopping back and forth back then, but he was definitely involved. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but other songs of the monkeys were written by uh, like Carol King and mm-hmm. and collaborators. So like there are several Carol King songs that pop up in this movie, and they're fantastic. Probably one of the best songs in the movie, the Porpoise Song, is a yes. uh, Carol King and uh, I forget the the collaborator. Uh, to his name will come up later. Um, uh, Harry Nielsen too. They, they they had some really good Harry Nielsen collaborations in the future, and and not not to uh, you know harp too much on my favorite monkey, Michael Nesmith, but Michael Nesmith definitely wrote 
all of the best monkey songs. Well, we'll hear at least one in this movie, uh, Circle Sky. But uh, when you hear that that um, that Texas twang out of uh, Mike Nesmith's mouth, you know you know it's a, a Nesmith original. And uh, man, he writes a damn fine song. He, um, if folks don't know, he was well, well. We'll get to this later, but he was already a famous songwriter before he joined the Monkees. Like for example, mm-hmm. he wrote uh, Linda Ronstadt's uh, "Different Drum." You know yeah, that song? Yeah. That's a, that's a Nesmith original. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we'll have to talk about the different elements as we go along, but maybe before we go into the history of the monkeys and what the monkeys mean, uh, we should just give a a brief description of what is head. What is this movie? Mm -hmm. It is hard to describe, but I I think the way I would put it is that it is a non-linear madcap comedy starring the mid sixties made for TV band, the monkeys as themselves or as the slightly fictionalized versions of themselves that were that were the monkeys or actually you might say as like a second order character like a uh, a second order fictionalized version of the monkeys that appears in this movie to sort of comment on the characters that they played in the show does that make any sense it absolutely does and you know i was just thinking to myself what other structures around this time were happening and here's something that I, I don't believe this can be connected because the timelines are too similar. I think it was probably just like the vibe going through the air was um, did you ever used to watch Rowan and Martin's laugh in. I think I've seen like one episode of it. I'm it had, pointing uh, out how old I am, but I definitely okay. used to watch reruns of Rowan and Martin's laugh in back in the day. And it has that same highly gosh, how do you even put it? Because it's a combination of psychedelia, corny old jokes rapid succession from like shot to shot very little uh, uh connection from thing to thing mm-hmm. and that show came out in 1968 the same year as this movie mm, so okay. I, I i i'm not claiming that there's any connection there but i do think there must have been something in the water that made people feel that this was like where the pendulum was swinging that this was the kind of structure that that was needed in the world or something in the kool-aid uh the yeah, <laughs> yeah. the electric kool-aid uh exactly there uh, I think it would be, in fact, I, I was going to say it would be hard to deny uh, the the drug influences on this movie. Mm. But in fact, you couldn't even, like, the creators have explicitly said this movie was fueled by psychedelic drugs. Definitely. Uh, like yeah. Bob Rafelson, uh, who we'll talk about in a bit, uh, has given interviews extensively talking about how much uh, the use of drugs like marijuana and LSD played into the creative process that... Uh, that led to this film. I don't know how much for like the monkeys themselves, but for the writers and the and the director, certainly this is a a very psychedelic forward uh, comedy comedy film. Mm. But also, so yeah, you get that very like uh, only loosely logically connected or sometimes totally logically unconnected sequence of images and scenes. But also, uh, I just wanted to run down like a list of things. Mm that this movie does what these these comedic episodes in the movie do so they satirize american media especially like movies and tv with traditional square storytelling genres like westerns and war movies uh but also they uh they satirize american advertising and just uh just the the general landscape of the media news report reports and stuff like that uh, but also these there are several points in the movie that quite viscerally critique the morality of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War with like 
truly uh, shocking imagery. Mm. But then the movie also experiments with psychedelic music and uh, imagery styles. I think if you, I was going to offer some critiques of this film, one of them would be that I think they got a little too excited about the solarization effect. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's quite as cool as they thought it was. <laughs> right, for sure. Yeah. I, I felt the same thing uh, eventually. Um, it was just a one throw-off moment, so I doubt we'll be referencing it directly. There was a scene with a bunch of Mylar balloons floating around, and I uh, think they thought it would blow our minds. Yeah. And I was like, no, nah, we know what Mylar balloons are. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, but then along with all that, we get traditional song and dance numbers. There's even like a, a Broadway show tune kind of number in it that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are just like constant detours into corny non sequitur jokes. Like the jokes are not all, uh, y- you know, l- like dark, incisive comedy. A lot of it is just really bottom of the barrel kind of just uh, the silliest puns and stuff and and Uh, like you said too the non the non sequitur nonsensical nature of some of the humor is some of my favorites too um one of my favorites i'll mention later it's it's early in the movie so i'll bring it up later but a lot of it is just good timing and good editing with just like odd creative choices uh especially uh captions they use a lot of odd um text on screen captions and editing choices that are fascinating Oh, like when the guy says Psst, to to Mickey Dolans. Yes, yeah. yes, that that yeah, that that happens early in the movie. We'll, we'll we'll mention that scene soon. But that that genuinely made me laugh out loud. That Psst, that we'll mention soon. <laughs> okay, but another big thing this movie does is it meditates on, I would say, from the movie's perspective, the genuinely quite terrifying implied psychic undercurrents of Beatlemania and Monkey Mania. The movie almost suggests there is something like threatening and fascist about the about the adulation of bands like this. Um, and then also it meditates on the meaninglessness of the monkeys as a concept and on the meaninglessness of life and on illusions of freedom. But also it's funny. <laughs> it's very true. It's it's genuinely a funny film and it's amazing how they balance all of these pieces, that it can be this dark, this um, unconnected, but also this watchable and this funny. It's it's actually quite masterful in many ways. Yeah. Um, so in other ways, though, I mean, it's it's a movie clearly made in the 60s and like the 60s are just wafting through it. So it is very dated in a lot of ways, but in other ways, it stands out as surprisingly fresh and good. Uh, and even shockingly, as I said earlier, sharp with its satire sometimes. I, it, It's hard for me to think of another movie quite like this. Agreed. Maybe we should hear some trailer audio. Can you dig it? Do you know? Not since the Ten Commandments. If you liked Covered Wagon... Beyond From Here to Eternity... They can't be the Marx Brothers, they're too young. Columbia Pictures presents... The Monkees. Mickey, Davey, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right, Head. What's it all about? 
Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure. Head is the most extraordinary adventure western comedy love story, mystery drama, musical documentary satire ever filmed. All right, so this is the part of the episode we usually call Connections, where we talk about uh, some people involved. There were a lot of people involved with this movie. It has a ton of cameos. We can't possibly name them all, but uh, we'll try to talk through uh, some of the main figures, and then maybe we'll hit on some other things as we go through the plot a little bit. Uh, The plot, quote, it doesn't have a plot, but as we talk about what happens on screen. um, the, uh, The director and writer of this film... As a guy named Bob Rafelson, who lived in 1933 through 2022. Uh, he was an American director, writer, and producer. Head was his first feature film, though he had previously worked on TV as one of the creators of The Monkees TV series for NBC in 1965-66. Uh, I think maybe he created it in 65 and it debuted in 66, I believe. Um, but he would later go on to be best known as a a director of films like uh, Five Easy Pieces in 1970, which he directed and co-wrote with Carol Eastman and which starred Jack Nicholson and Karen Black. He also directed the 1981 adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice. This is a story that was made into, had multiple movie versions over the years. Uh, This version starring, again, Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. And then he also did The King of Marvin Gardens in 1972, Stay Hungry in 1976, a film starring Jeff Bridges and Sally Field, but also Arnold Schwarzenegger in a straight dramatic role. This is this was, I think, his first movie after he appeared as Arnold Strong in that Hercules film. Uh, I've never seen that. And I'm actually kind of curious, too. That sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's like a it's not an action movie at all. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays like a guy who either owns or manages a gym and uh, a a gym, I think somewhere in Alabama. And uh, Jeff Bridges is like a shady real estate developer who's trying to like scam him into selling the gym property for some reason. Fascinating. Um, And and I bet this would have been technically the first time his voice was on film because wasn't he dubbed in that Hercules movie? Oh, I bet he was. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Rafelson also directed Black Widow in 87, which is a sort of uh, neo-noir movie. I think that has Deborah Winger in it. Uh, And he did the 1990 biographical film Mountains of the Moon about the journeys of Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak. Uh, Rafelson, along with his partner, Bert Schneider, uh, they also provided funding for the production of Easy Rider in 1969, which was huge. It, it's it's kind of hard to overstate the impact of Easy Rider on the film industry. It was hugely influential independent film uh, and a kind of frozen in time snapshot of the feeling of an era, that era being the, the late 60s counterculture. And uh, together with another producer named Steve Blauner, Rafelson and Schneider would found a company called BBS Productions, which um, from what I understand, they like entered into an agreement with Columbia Pictures to finance films without allowing creative interference by the studios. And I think this is seen by some as like an important component in the evolution of the new Hollywood of the 1970s, which was more, it was sort of uh, less focused on creative control by the studio and more focused on creative control by the directors and filmmakers. 
But before all that, Rafelson made the monkeys. When I was a kid uh, and I was aware of, you know, the monkeys, I knew their songs from the radio and stuff. I actually did not realize that they were a band created for television. And I don't know if this qualifies them as a, quote, fictional band, because uh, I, I was talking about this with my wife, Rachel. We watched the movie together and we were talking about, like, what does it mean for a band to be fictional? At least what you can say about the monkeys is they are not a band that formed by musicians on their own right. They were formed for a project that was organized by someone else. And originally, not all members of the band played their instruments and wrote songs, though they would kind of grow into different roles. Uh, but because of that like growth and, and coming more into musicianship over time, I guess you might say that they could, in some sense, be considered a, quote, real band, whatever that <laughs> means. Um, but at least at the beginning, yeah, they, they did not all write songs or play instruments. The way I understand it, and Seth, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think Mike Nesmith and Peter Tork played instruments, and Nesmith alone had written songs, but the others were kind of new to music in this way? Uh, kind of. It, it, uh, one way that um, Mickey Dolan's would often... Uh, kind of make an analogy for the situation was that they hired Leonard Nimoy to play a Vulcan and eventually they had to actually become a Vulcan. That was their mm. job. And um, so let's see here. Uh, Davy Jones was a Broadway guy. Like he was, he got really popular because he was the artful Dodger in Oliver. That was like his like claim to fame. <laughs> that fits, yeah, exactly. He, he's Consider he's a song yourself. and dance man. <laughs> yeah, he, very 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 like soft shoe. That's his thing, and uh, that's kind of the role that he kind of kept throughout yeah. the movie. Uh, in fact, Zappa Frank Zappa makes a great cameo later and makes reference to that in the film, which we'll we'll get there. But um, so yeah, that was his background. He could he could do some like Broadway type singing, but he wasn't really a musician. And when you see him on the monkeys, he's usually playing like the tambourine or the maracas or something like that. But he's sort of the, the lead singer. Exactly. Um, yeah. uh, although technically, if you go by the numbers, Mickey Dolan's sang more than anyone. But but anyway, oh, anyway, okay. anyway. Um, so then we had uh, Mike Nesmith, who was the full-blown real musician. He was making a living as a musician. That was his job. Mm -hmm. And then Peter Tork definitely hung out with hippies. In fact, the uh, only reason he came to the Monkees was that his friend Stephen Stills had auditioned, <laughs> uh -huh. been rejected. And then Stephen Stills said to Peter Tork, Hey man, I think you're actually what they're looking for. You should go. You should go check this out. And that's how that happened. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, the the way I heard it put was that he was like a younger, cuter version of Stephen Stills. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's like they 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 weren't into this, but you might you might get it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, yes, Mickey Dolenz was a child actor, so he was uh, the star of a television show called Circus Boy, I believe, and so he was already like deep inside like the Hollywood scene mm. and he had some experience I believe playing guitar but nothing else and then okay. as a default when the band kind of got together they were like someone has to sit sit behind the drums Mickey that's you and he's like I don't know how to play the drums he's like well you don't know how to play anything you'll figure it out <laughs> so Mickey <laughs> by default had to learn how to be the drummer okay yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. Th th they all had some experience but Nesmith was the only real musician there 
But so they were, the monkeys were created uh, by Rafelson and Schneider to pitch as a show for NBC that would be like a sitcom about a struggling folk rock band in California. But it was, from what I understand, very much based on Beatlemania and the success of the Beatles, maybe the Beatles movies at that point. Right. Yeah, let's go Let's go a little bit into the history here. And uh, in fact, when he first pitched this series, uh, Rafelson, he pitched with the band The Lovin' Spoonful. He said, this will be the band that we will focus on. And mm. uh, that fell apart for who knows how many reasons. And uh, rumor has it, who knows, you know, I mean, uh, what, what's the saying? Um, there are many fathers to a creative idea or something like that. You know, whatever that phrase is. Success has a million fathers or something. S- something like that. Yeah. Who knows the, the 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 absolute truth behind all of this? But uh, Rafelson said that he did have the idea for the monkeys actually long before Beatlemania. But hmm. then uh, he had the... Um, the clout to start pitching it around after the uh, Beatles 1964 film, A Hard Day's Night, hit the theaters and was a big success. It's a very simple film. It basically just shows the Beatles preparing for a concert and then they have some wacky adventures along the way to their concerts with many little musical interludes peppered throughout. Um, but probably because it happened in the height of Beatlemania and also because it actually is a genuinely good movie. Uh, have, have you ever seen Hard Day's Night before, Joe? No, strangely enough, the only one of the Beatles films I've seen is uh, Yellow Submarine. I, so I haven't seen. Too. Yeah, I, I have not seen Hard Day's Night or I think the other one from just a year later, which was Help. Help is also quite good. And then yeah. also there's one more, um, which was more or less a concert film, which was the uh, Magical Mystery Tour. That that okay. one also exists. But um, Hard Day's Night is actually quite good. If anyone in the audience hasn't seen it, I recommend it. It's actually a Criterion pick, I believe. Mm. And um, so that was a big commercial and uh, a, a critical success. And so based on that success, Bob Rafelson, are, are you pronouncing it Rafelson? Is that, is that what we're going with? I like that. that that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's I'm what I it. that's what I heard Jack Nicholson say in an interview. So I, <laughs> I assume it. he's right because they were friends. <laughs> exactly. Let's go with Rafelson. Uh, so Bob Rafelson then, based on this success, was able to go around to the studios and be like, hey, you saw that success. We want to do that for TV. Let's do that. So Bob Rafelson and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Burt Schneider, they were able to uh, sell this concept to television. And the concept was four charming musicians live together and they have wacky adventures, just like... Uh, <laughs> just like A Hard Day's Night. And so um, this sitcom was going to be called The uh, the Monkees, and basically it would uh, premiere September 12th, 1966. Uh, they had a, a open casting call, and they, you know, uh, basically had auditions with hundreds and hundreds of mu- musicians, which they filmed, actually. And they actually mm. um, include some of that footage in the TV show The Monkees, which is actually very charming and very entertaining. And they wound up hiring uh, the, the four that we've mentioned, Mickey Dolenz, Peter Tork, Michael Nesmith, Davy Jones. Now, um, all four actors had some experience, like we mentioned, but the only one amongst them that was like, no, I'm a musician and I care about music was Mike Nesmith. Uh, mm. These four, they were hired to be actors pretending to be musicians. They were not hired to be musicians. All the music from the show was going to be uh, written and recorded by quote-unquote real musicians behind the scenes, and they these four actors were going to provide the singing voices, and that's it. They they mm. they were not the the creators had no interest in this. Um, I can go into much deeper detail about the fights they had with like the, the original music producers and all this other stuff, um, but another time, another time. <laughs> um, but basically. Uh, 
the first two albums that they recorded. Uh, that would have been uh, 1966's The Monkees and 1967's More of the Monkees. Uh, these functioned as, as like the soundtrack for season one of the TV show. And um, eventually it just kind of came out that uh, this was all phony. This scripted TV show wasn't real. <laughs> this was <wasn't laughs> a documentary. <laughs> it, it was so. So the audience um, they felt deceived. They felt that like we, they'd been sold a bill of goods that was not genuine. And so then they had to kind of like there. There was a backlash against them. Mm. Now, I, I, in uh, defense of. The monkeys themselves. Um, Nesmith actually complained about this pretty early on. For example, um, on the first record, The Monkeys, if you look at it, it looks like just a genuine record from a band. There's no like liner notes showing which musicians played on it and who wrote and blah, 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 blah. It mm. looks like The Monkeys made this record. And he complained about that. He said, You're fooling these people. He's like, You're oh. making them think that we're a real band by design. And that's not going to work out in the long term. I can see that. Okay, so I, I would have thought it would be silly to be mad at this TV band for not being what is portrayed as because it's obviously a fictional show and all that. But I guess I would feel differently if, yeah, I can understand. Like if you put out a record and the liner notes don't give credit to the people who actually played on the songs and all that, that would feel more like a true deception. Exactly. And and so that's what happened on the first two albums. And the monkeys basically put their foot down. This is in between seasons one and two. And they were like, we want more creative control, we, especially over the music. But in general, you know, if we are the monkeys and this is a hit and it was a hit, then we want, you know, to, to feel like we are getting our voice put through here and not feel like fraud frauds not not mm. feel like um hacks you know so that that's what happened and they were able to start making their uh, own music and really focus on everything themselves and that started with their third album headquarters and um you know based on whatever uh, uh a different situation you want to say after that season where they took control the series was canceled so i i don't think we can fully blame that on the monkeys but hey, that's, that is something that definitely happened. And then the next step after their TV show was canceled, hey, let's make a feature-length film, and that's the movie that we're talking about today. And um, so after the commercial and critical failure of Head, the movie we're talking about today, uh, the Monkees uh, then started a, a long series of breaking up and getting back together and having a reunion. And hey, this time the Monkees are just two people. And hey, this time the Monkees are three people. And basically every combination you could imagine of those four either being together or apart, it happened at one point or another. And um, in fact, there was this great joke uh, made at some point, this would have been in the early 70s, where, um, so Peter Tork was the first monkey to quit. This was after the movie came out. Mm. Then uh, Nesmith quit soon after that. And um, so each monkey's album for a while there just had one fewer member. There was one with just three. <laughs> then there was one with two. And then when a reviewer reviewed the album that just had uh, Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones on it, he's like, I'm pretty sure the next album is just going to be called The Monkey. And I was like, that's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, so, so this happened on again, off again for years and years. They have, they had different like moments of nostalgic popularity again. They even got back together to record new albums at different points throughout their career. Some of those are actually quite good. Some of them not so much. And um, this all kind of ended for sure, for sure, in their final farewell tour 
that was just Nesmith and Dolan's, and that tour ended in 2021. And then the third of the monkeys, uh, Mike Nesmith, he died. So, so I believe Davy Jones was first, Peter Tork was second, uh, Mike Nesmith was third, and Dolan's is our last living monkey at this mm. current date uh, on 2024. Yeah. Now, I did want to come back and emphasize, though, there's one, even though we're talking about how the, uh, you know, the, there was this frustration with the fact that the creative direction of the music was mostly given from the studio originally, from the uh, television studio, and not from the monkeys themselves. I don't think we should undersell the importance of the monkeys, like the, the individual guys in the band as, uh, as, as like what made the show popular because Rafelson talks about how when they first put together the pilot episode, uh, they had only the scripted elements in it mm. and, uh, the, the executives, the test audiences, whoever, everybody who looked at it hated it. They were like terrible, awful. And then he made a change. And the only change he made was he inserted what you were talking about. The, uh, some of the interviews that were totally unscripted just conversations interviews with the guys in the band when they were like auditioning for the roles and that completely changed the reaction everybody loved it and so it was like the original personal charm of these four actors slash musicians which was what made the show initially as successful as it was for sure. And and yeah, I mean, if you ever get a chance, I'm sure you could find them on YouTube or just watch the, the TV show The Monkeys. I think it's quite good. But yeah, like very funny Beatles-esque quips. Like I, I remember in uh, Davy Jones's audition, he's in there and um, the uh, interviewer is just like, oh, so like, well, what kind of a sound do you make? And he's like, what do you mean? I don't get that. He's like, no, what kind of sound? Like a like a rock sound or a folk sound? He's like, I make a terrible sound. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Very nice. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so another thing that'll be important going into talking about the movie is that I think I think you could say that each monkey in the band has a uh, has a bit. They've each got sort of an archetype they fit. And uh, Seth, you can tell me if I'm wrong about these, but this is the way I understood it. I don't know the monkeys as well as you, but the way I read it is that Davy Jones is the singer and he's the cute one. Mike Nesmith is on guitar and he's like the serious one or the brooding artist. Peter Tork is on bass and he's the simple one, sort of the California stoner, the surfer type. And then Mickey Dolenz is on drums and he's the cut up, the goofball. I, I think that's pretty accurate for sure. Um, I, I, I would quibble on very small things. Like I would say Peter Tork, instead of being simple, he was more naive like he, mm. he was the one that was going to believe you he was the hippie but I, I think what you said was close enough and then i would like i mentioned before too mickey dolan's by the numbers is perhaps the actual lead singer of the monkeys just because he sang okay. on the most tracks <laughs> many people consider mickey's voice to be the actual voice of the monkeys but part of that might be just too that he stuck with it the longest he is the mm. last surviving monkey so his voice is the voice of the monkeys now i guess i'm uh, thinking more about the way i've seen them arranged on stage when definitely. they're performing that yes. they have they would have davy jones out front and they, they I, um, I've seen that talked about before, too. Where, like I said, none of them were drummers. One of them just had to become the drummer. And they yeah. at first were thinking about Davey. And they're like, he's too short. We won't see him. <laughs> we, need, we need a bigger monkey back there. And that's why Mickey became uh, the drummer. Um, and, and here's the an interesting monkey. thing, too. <laughs> here's an interesting thing, too, is that, um, like I said, uh, obviously, they were trying to duplicate the Beatles and the Beatles' success. So if you look at it, the, the manufactured personality types are actually kind of one-to-one -to, -one to the Beatles. Davy Jones, the cute one, was Paul McCartney, the cute one. Mm. Uh, Mike Nesmith, the serious artist, was John Lennon, the serious artist. Uh, Peter Tork, the quiet one, was George Harrison, the quiet one. And then Mickey Dolan's kind of the goof was Ringo Starr, kind of the goof. 
I don't think it quite matches up because their real personalities of the monkeys actually kind of like further developed. But it yeah. is interesting how close they are one to one. Yeah, Mickey Dolenz's goofiness is different than Ringo's goofiness. Like yeah. Mickey is not an octopus's garden kind of goof. He's no. a he's he's a different. He's got a sharper kind of goofiness. He's a ham for sure. He he definitely like um he's putting on a he's putting on a show. He 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 mugs to the camera. He he's 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 a he he's a Hollywood actor. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. what he is. <laughs> uh, but actually, the like it. I mean, he's good in there. Yeah. In some of his comedic scenes in Head, he's legitimately hilarious. Like the scene where he's fighting the Coke machine is. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing out loud. Definitely. Um. But uh, briefly to come back to, to Rafelson for just a moment, I wanted to mention uh, a, a quote of his I found where he said, um, he said, quote, of course, Head is an utterly and totally fragmented film. Among other reasons for making it was that I thought I would never get to make another movie. So I might as well make 50 to start out with and put them all in the same feature. And when I read that, I was like, that's exactly right. That, that's what this movie feels like. So he did go on to become a big deal in Hollywood in the 70s. He made a lot of other successful films. But at this point, that w- hadn't happened yet. He didn't know that was going to happen. So it's like he he just tried to put everything he had on screen in one go. And it's surprising how well it works. It's almost like he was constructing his own like director's reel that he could show yeah. off later. Be like, yeah. look, I did look a at, war film. <laughs> yeah, look at my range. Yeah. I did a desert. I did a party. I did a concert. I did all these things. I, I've actually heard something similar from uh, Jordan Peele, where when he started directing stuff for Key and Peele, he went all out and really dedicated himself to these big set pieces with lots mm. of production value because in the future he knew that if he wanted to say I'm a, I'm a film director now he would be able to go back and show them these examples of oh look at these zombies I did zombies hey look at this you know I did sports <laughs> that would ex- why the makeup effects on Key and Peele were so good yeah exactly yeah. He, he, he was he was constructing a uh, a future director's reel much like Rafelson Okay, uh, next person I want to talk about here with uh, Head is the other writer of the film, Jack Nicholson, born 1937. Uh, Have we talked about Jack Nicholson on the show before? Little known actor, mostly famous for (laughs) playing the, uh, possibly playing the giant crab in Roger Corman's Attack of the Crab Monsters. Um, Speaking of this movie in an interview many years later, Nicholson said at this point in his career, he was actually thinking that he probably wanted to be a writer-director instead of an actor. And at this point, his acting career was mostly like B-movies. I mean, he'd, you know, he'd actually done stuff with the Roger Corman crew. You know, he'd been in uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, I guess, and, uh, you know, uh, Corman-type stuff. He was in, what was it called, The Terror? Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. This is a Corman movie from 63 starring Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson. So like actors I love, you'd, th- you'd think it'd be riveting, but I, uh, I think I've tried to watch it and like literally never made it more than 10 minutes. Um, wow. I think it's a, it's a, it's a snooze fest from what I can recall, but I don't know, maybe if I went back and revisited, I would think differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a long time, but yeah. So he, he mostly had uh, like B movies under his belt at this point. That's amazing. Uh, can, can I tell you a couple of fun things about Jack Nicholson directly tied into this movie? Yes, please. Uh, here, here are a couple of fun facts about Jack Nicholson, specifically when he was working on this film. 
Uh, one is that if you listen to the soundtrack album of this movie, it's actually highly respected. It's one of the monkeys' most beloved uh, albums, um, not only from the fans, but also from the monkeys themselves. They think it's one of the best. Jack Nicholson completely compiled and arranged that soundtrack because it's got all kinds of little like clips and sound bits from the movie itself and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful noise collage of an album. It's fantastic. And the reason that happened was that um, one day Jack Nicholson saw Mike Nesmith working on it, like in the studio, and he was like, oh, I, I'd love to help out with that if you need, if you need some, you know, need, need an extra hand. And Nesmith was like, I just want to go home. You do it. <laughs> so, so Jack stepped in and just did it himself. And then um, because this was, you know, uh, at the time, just probably the biggest thing that uh, Jack Nicholson ever had ever been associated with. The monkeys were all stars. This is amazing. He got to write a monkeys movie. This this is his big break. You know, he took a very active hand in the promotion of this film, doing all kinds of like, you know, like street team, like stickering campaigns and stuff like that, going yeah. to like all the different premieres. And uh, he eventually said, quote, I saw it like 158 million times, man. I loved it. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I read a a, fa a supposed fact that Jack Nicholson was at one point arrested for putting a sticker to promote the film on a cop's helmet in New York. <laughs> that 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 matches with everything I've heard. So I think we can call that a fact. <laughs> um, so but yeah, so he was uh so this is interesting that he eventually got so deep into this movie and was so dedicated to promoting it because that sort of clashes with his initial reaction to the pitch. So this was when he he wanted to be a writer-director instead of an actor. This would be, you know, the mid-late 60s. And the way he was explaining it in this interview is he went to pitch himself as a writer to Bob Rafelson, who he knew. And he, he was you know, trying to sell himself on... He's like, yeah, put me to work, Bob. He said, Bob, I can write a movie about anything, anything. And Rafelson said, okay, can you write me a movie for the monkeys? And Nicholson replied with evident disgust, the monkeys, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Uh, and I think this, this indicates the interesting place this movie came from. You were talking about this, this earlier, uh, Seth, with the monkeys backlash after the first mm. couple seasons of the show, where they came to be perceived as like brutally uncool by the, uh, by the, the hip out there tastemakers, uh, you know, sort of the acid Ronin, like, like Jack Nicholson and probably even Rafelson himself, like that they were looking on this as, oh, this is very uncool now. And I think you could say this is also um, indicative of a kind of there's a thing like this that pops up, not just with respect to the artists themselves, but I've often not uh, noticed like there's like a, there's like a revulsion a lot of like dudes have to uh, to acts that are very popular, especially with teenage girls. Right. You know, that there's like a kind of sexist backlash to that, too. And I bet that was part of it as well. One makes the comparison to um, like the late 90s, early 2000s boy bands yeah. assembled in the same way. There, there's some, you know, corporate overlord behind the scenes who puts a casting call out and just assembles the cute ones and gives them each like a personality type. And then they're presented to the public with music that they didn't write and didn't perform. It was 100 percent like the uh, the original templates that became the boy band template in the future. Uh -huh. And that wasn't well respected when it first happened. I think over time. You know, very similarly, I'm sure boy bands, you know, take more control over their creative output and et cetera, et cetera, and all that stuff. But 
I can see why someone like Jack Nicholson would be like, you want me to make an in sync movie? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the equivalent in the nineties would be like, who is the Jack Nicholson of the time being asked <laughs> right. to make an in sync movie? Well, you know what? Here's, here's an example. This would have been much later though, but, do you remember when it was first announced that the next David Fincher movie was going to be the Facebook movie? And everyone thought, what? What? Why? 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 Of all the things David Fincher can do, he he's the seven guy. He's the game. You know, he's a, what's, what's another great one? The Fight Club. He's a Fight Club guy. Why is he making a movie about Facebook? And then The Social Network came out and it, it's a great movie because yeah. great, great artists can make great art out of anything. Yeah. And people didn't realize how dark the take would be in the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but oh, yeah. Anyway, so coming back to like, so uh, Nicholson's initial reaction is like, you want me to make a movie for the monkeys? I can't, you can't be serious. But then Rafelson replies, like, wait a minute, you just said you could write about anything. Were you, you know, were you lying to me? So Nicholson says, okay, I'll do it. And so the next day, Nicholson has to go in and pitch his monkey script to uh, Rafelson's partner, Bert Schneider. And Nicholson goes in, meets him. He tells him, uh, OK, I've got two movie ideas for you, Bert. One of them I can guarantee with 100 percent certainty will be <laughs> as big a hit as a hard day's night. And the other one, I can guarantee you with equal certainty, won't make a dime. And then without hearing another word, Schneider says, I want the second one. <laughs> well, and, and you know what? And here we are. With <laughs> this is actually going to be something that is full-blown rumor mill. But some people believe this, including some of the monkeys. There's a rumor that uh, Jack Nicholson uh, and then uh, Bert and Jack. Wait, wait, hold on. There's too many Jacks, right? What's what's Rafelson? Bob. Bob. <laughs> Bob Rafelson, Jack Nicholson, and uh, Bert Schneider. That the three of them intentionally tanked this movie because um, they wanted to be done with the monkeys. In in particular, that. Um, that Bob Rafelson wanted to move on from this into bigger and better things. And the mm -hmm. only way he was going to get that was if the monkeys failed and went away. Now, I think this is perhaps complete fabrication, but many people believe it so much to the point that if you watch, um, there's a biopic about the monkeys. I believe it's called Daydream Believer, but it's one of those like made for TV, very low budget things. There is a scene where they are filming the dandruff scene, which we will get to later, of the film head in the artificial made-for-TV biopic of the monkeys. I know this is getting, like, Inception layers. Uh -huh. But uh, in that scene, someone walks onto the set and is like, what are you doing? This is garbage. No one's going to like this. And you see Jack Nicholson, the, the actor playing Jack Nicholson, and the actor playing Bob Rafelson look at each other and give each other a knowing look. And then they continue <laughs> filming. And, like, I, I don't think there's any confirmed truth behind this, but that uh, is something that many people believed, including some of the monkeys. I mean, th that's interesting. I could see that being possible. I will say that uh, while I would regard that with skepticism, I also regard with skepticism a lot of the firsthand accounts of people like Rafelson and Jack Nicholson about their time working on these projects because, like, I don't know, some of them are kind of like contain self-contradictory details like right. uh and also it's just like you know it's hollywood storytelling there's it's just notorious for people kind of like telling tall tales about how projects came to be maybe not even remembering totally and uh and just making it into a good story so so who knows really
And as you mentioned, there were definitely drugs involved. Like they that's, were, that, yeah, that's established. <laughs> Rafelson said in an interview that a lot of this movie was written under the influence of psychedelics in Harry Dean Stanton's basement. <laughs> Amazing. So that's uh, Harry Dean Stanton's basement is its own sort of entheogen, I guess. This was um, also depicted in the biopic. And it's them sitting around in a haze of uh, of pot smoke um, with a tape recorder, just saying all of the wildest ideas they can possibly think. And um, yes. it's a fascinating biopic if anyone wants to uh, learn more about the monkeys. <laughs> uh, now, when it comes to the cast of this movie, most of the cast, apart from the monkeys, I think could best be classified as cameos. There are not really very substantial roles in the film, but more like people who pop in and out for strange little scenes or recurring gags. Oh, and uh, audience, uh, don't feel bad if you don't notice these cameos when you watch this film, because I've seen this movie many, many times, and I recognize, like, none of them. Even even from, like, actors and personalities I know, like Terry Garr and Annette Funicello, I cannot tell you where Terry Garr is in this movie, and I cannot tell you where Annette Funicello is in this movie. I can blame part of that on my face blindness, but I think the other part, too, is that these are just blips. These are just passing things in the night. Um, most of these cameos have very little substance to them. And uh, Rafelson has said in interviews that when finding uh, when finding people to do all of these cameos, he claims he was specifically looking for people who were recognizable to the public, but who had in some way been like used up, mistreated, rejected, or sort of grown past. So he wanted this this like large cameo chorus of has-beens, weirdos, outcasts, and who's-thats. And I, I don't know if that's exactly what he successfully summoned here, but I, if that's indeed what he was going for, I can kind of see it. The movie is frantic, and the the lines that characters deliver are not characteristic of the characters as they appear, if that makes right. any sense. Right. So the, it's almost like um, it's almost like people like cameo people show up to do a cameo, but the lines they say could have been randomly reassigned to any of the other people. You know what I mean? Yes, for sure. And and the lines don't feel like they're developing anything. Many of them are just non sequitur poetry in many ways. Yeah. A lot of them don't actually mean anything other than conveying a feeling or like maybe perhaps just kind of setting the mood for the scene that is to follow. So there is no way I can mention all the cameos in this movie, but I'm going to just mention some of the top ones who get some of the some of the most screen time. So you already mentioned, uh, Seth, that there is uh, Annette Funicello, uh, who -hmm. lived uh, 1942 to 2013. She was an American actress who started out as a child performer on the Mickey Mouse Club. She was a mouseketeer and she would later become a pop singer Uh, in the 60s. She had success with uh, movies in the beach party subgenre. And I just love how a popular genre of movies used to be beach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sort of a sort of a Ken genre, you know, um, and uh, it makes me think like so the other, you know, her her partner in these movies was often Frankie Avalon. So was he sort of the original Ken? 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. Absolutely. We also get uh, Terry Garr, who you mentioned, born 1944, American actress and comedian, acted in lots of TV and movies. Uh, she's uh, uh, famously very funny. Uh, she was a dancer, too, I think, before she was a she was an actress and comedian. Uh, she was in movies as as different as Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation and uh, Young, Young Frankenstein, the Mel Brooks movie. Uh, two questions for you, just real quick. I started to interrupt. Okay. One, so was Terry Gar a known entity when she filmed this? Um, I guess we can't answer. To me. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we, we weren't alive yeah. at the time. Because, like, to me, and I only have, you know, hindsight to, to look at this, to me, I picture like the birth of Terry Gar as being young Frankenstein, but that's just because that's what I know her best from. So, I, I my, my perception is definitely skewed. I wonder if someone in 1968 knew who she was. And actually, real quick, Annette Funicello, where is she in this movie? I've never once been able to like pinpoint her of you. Uh, in the, I think she's in the scene where Davy Jones wants to be a boxer. Like he, he could have oh. been a contender uh-huh. and he's boxing with actually, so he's boxing with Sonny Liston. Okay. Um, another cameo. Another cameo in the movie. So Sonny Liston, who lived 1930 to 1970, American pro boxer. He became a world heavyweight champion in 1962 after knocking out Floyd Patterson. And then in 1964, uh, Sonny Liston was defeated by Muhammad Ali, who was then known as Cassius Clay. So by the time this movie was made, Liston had already lost his world heavyweight title. And here, here he's in the scene where he's boxing Davy Jones. And I think Annette Funicello is like Davy Jones' uh, wife who's sitting in the audience watching him. Mm. And then I think he's supposed to take a dive. And then they have this emotional scene where uh, she's shown crying, asking him, I don't even remember what she's asking him to do. And you see like a hand reach in from off, from off screen to like wipe her tears away. It's not her (laughs) hand. (laughs) Okay. I'm learning. This is great. I'm pretty sure that's her. Uh, but so yeah, that that's Sonny Liston. That's another one of them. Uh, Timothy Carey is in this. He's sort of he's recognizable. He lived twenty nine through ninety four. He was an American actor known for playing like weird, crazy characters. Uh, he was in several Stanley Kubrick movies. He was in The Killing. Uh, he was in Paths of Glory, and he was also in films as varied as the Marlon Brando western One Eyed Jacks in nineteen sixty one and the nineteen sixty five beach party movie Beach Blanket Bingo. Starring, guess who? Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. <laughs> uh, and then finally, sort of, if this film has a villain, I don't mean, <laughs> know, the, the villain might be us, the audience. Um, but also the, the film's villain might be Victor Mature, who lived 1913 to 1999. He kind of plays uh, Satan, like... Uh, Okay, so Victor Mature, the actor, was an American actor. He was known as like a suave leading man in movies in the 40s and 50s. Uh, he was like in the the Cecil B. DeMille biblical epic Samson and Delilah. And in this movie, he plays a cosmic trickster who sometimes appears out of the sky, and he seems to want to entrap the monkeys in a world of illusions that will cause them to forget their true nature. So he's sort of like like an old Hollywood Gnostic demiurge. I saw this movie at a young age originally, so I always considered him to be the jolly green giant of this film. <laughs> and... <laughs> Doesn't quite make sense, but that, that's uh, still a part of his character in my head whenever I see it. 
yeah, and there are tons of other cameos. Do we? I guess we should go ahead and say Frank Zappa's in this for like half a second. He pops in to yeah. say a line, and then a cow talks after him. <laughs> and his, I would say Frank Zappa's vibe in this movie is halfway between uh, 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 Alan Watts and Bertram Guilfoyle. <laughs> and uh, it's fun too because Frank Zappa was definitely a friend of the monkeys, and he makes an appearance in the um, TV show as well. And the scene that he played in the TV show. Frank Zappa plays Mike Nesmith and Mike Nesmith yes. plays Frank Zappa. And I've seen very, this clip. It's very entertaining. <laughs> I, I've seen this clip. I think they're like, they, they interview each other as each other. And doesn't um, Mike Nesmith like try to grill Frank Zappa as Mike Nesmith on like why their music is so hollow and commercial? Yes. Yes. It's great. It's great. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I believe Frank's main thing here. So uh, it's right after Davey has just performed like a soft shoe song and dance. He comes out and uh, Frank Zappa goes, man, that's really white. And then Davy Jones goes, yeah, so am I. <laughs> Very strange. Very strange. And then a cow talks. What does the cow say? Oh, I cuckoo uh, chew or something, you know, yeah. gabba gabba hay. <laughs> something nonsensical. <laughs> A lot of my favorite quotes in this movie are complete nonsense. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Okay, so here's the part where we would normally do a full plot breakdown. Uh, This movie doesn't really have a plot, so we can't do that. But we will instead try to describe some things that happen in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, It opens with a scene that's like a ribbon-cutting ceremony where there are all these police gathered around, Marines in silver helmets. And then we see a politician get out of a limo. This character is credited as Mayor Feedback. And he he comes up to a ribbon. He, somebody like hands him a huge pair of scissors and he walks up to a ribbon. And this is for the opening of a new arch bridge in the Los Angeles area. Um, this I, this is apparently, I guess, supposed to be a real location, like a, a, a bridge in uh, Long Beach, California. But uh, the mayor, like, can't speak into the microphone without creating an infinite echo of feedback. And we just see this like loop of the cop keeps hammering on the microphone and then handing it back to the mayor like, eh, it's fine, but it's still creating all this feedback. So it's like even this moment seemed kind of thematically significant to me, like the person who's supposed to speak here knows that it is not going to sound right, but (laughs) he just keeps getting the mic handed back to him like, yeah, go ahead. It's it's an amazing bit of timing from uh i'm sure the director but uh, as well as the editor to have the confidence to start this you know what i'm sure would have been viewed as a children's film in 1968 before anyone saw it i'm sure a lot of like fans of the tv show showed up waiting for the tv show in in feature length and this is how they start because it's not even a quick moment it's it's what probably like four minutes perhaps oh it of goes this, on yeah of this slow pondering view of a mayor trying to talk into a microphone and getting in it's just it's it, it's not something that someone would do by the book it's it's a very deliberate decision yeah and then so before the mayor can cut the ribbon, uh-oh, here come the monkeys. So here's the introduction, <laughs> except there is no introduction. They just run through the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run through, like, tearing through the ribbon like the finish line of a race, uh, <laughs> sig- signifying a kind of finality here at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then they keep running with Mickey Dolan's running ahead of the other guys while these loud sirens wail all around them as if they are being pursued. It suggests a, a a feeling of persecution, but also like, ooh, these boys are bad. Uh, but we never see anybody in, in pursuit at this point, at least. Uh, but then the monkeys come to the edge of the bridge and then Mickey Dolenz jumps off the side of the bridge. And this is like not a low bridge. It's like really high up. He just jumps off. That's a way to start a movie. And audience remember this scene for later, because I definitely want to talk about it at the end again and where it will have a completely different context. Oh, yeah, this this does come back. So we see Mickey's body tumble through the air in slow motion, occasionally cutting to long shots of an obvious dummy. But when it's close up, I, I think it looks like it actually is Mickey and he's jumping on a trampoline. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, but he plunges into the water below and then we get our first musical number. And this is a strange choice for an opening musical number because <laughs> it. Number one, I think this song is great. It's one of the best songs in the movie, and I love it. But it's not really the vibe you would expect for the first song in a Monkees movie, which you'd think would be a more, I don't know, upbeat, tuneful uh, pop number. Instead, 
This is kind of a slower tempo psychedelic sound with a big instrumental section with like guitars, cello and other strings, woodwinds, organ, ringing bells. So it's almost like a day in the life that has all this crazy orchestra in it, just like pounding on the beat while this this languid melody uh, plays. And uh, the song is called The Porpoise Song. And uh, Seth, I don't know if you, if you want to talk about your thoughts about the song before we discuss the lyrics. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I love this song. I think it is amongst the monkey's best tracks. And I agree with everything you just said. I love the deliberate choice that the director and uh, uh, the writer and everyone, honestly, is making at this point to tell the audience, get out of here. <laughs> you know, this movie you came to see, we're not going to give it to you. We're going to give you something very strange get out of this theater. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's great. And um, there's actually a really great um, future use of this song. If anyone's ever seen the uh, Cameron Crowe film Vanilla Sky, this song is very intentionally, very prominently, and in multiple locations used in Vanilla Sky. So if you've seen that film, you've heard this song. I have seen that movie, but it was long ago, and I don't mm. remember the use of the song. Do you, do you, what part of the movie is it? I guess I don't want to give anything away, but I will oh, say okay. that never mind, it, never mind. But I'll, I'll give a very vague illusion. It matches in many ways Mickey's leap from the bridge. Okay. So this song was written uh, by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. Carol King uh, co-wrote a couple of the the best songs in in the soundtrack. And the lyrics seem very much to be a commentary on the creative frustrations of the monkeys who wanted to be musicians on their own terms, but were controlled by a corporate marketing apparatus. Um, so like there's a verse that, so the first verse is my, my, the clock in the sky is pounding away. There's so much to say, a face, a voice, an overdub has no choice. An image cannot rejoice. And so the lyrics end up, uh, sort of, uh, holding up this idea of like whatever the singer's position is as kind of like an image or a, a insubstantial reflection uh, opposite the idea of the porpoise. The, the porpoise, it says, is laughing goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The porpoise is kind of the image of freedom in the song. It's like a wild animal that can swim away in the ocean. And we hear the sounds of the porpoise literally like sampled at the end of the song. Uh, and uh, it's just repeatedly, it's like the sounds become mocking because it is clear that the singer will never have freedom like the porpoise does. The singer instead... Um, summarizes uh, their situation in the verse that says clicks clacks riding on the backs of giraffes for laughs is all right for a while the ego sings of castles and kings and things that go with a life of style wanting to feel to know what is real living is a lie the porpoise is waiting goodbye goodbye see in sync would never do that these boys <laughs> Far beyond in sync. <laughs> I, I think, you know, a lot of uh, psychedelic songs have lyrics that like they kind of sound cool. They're more for sonic effect than they right. are for for meaning. But I, I don't know. I think these are good, meaningful lyrics. It's the it's really clever. The line about clicks and clacks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with uh, clicks being the idea of like uh, the, the clicks that control the band, the clicks of producers and so forth. The clacks being clacked, meaning like uh, paid audience members. And, and phonetically too, like just just, yeah. just the onomatopoeic sound of both those things works on that level as well. It's it's deep, it's meaningful, and it sounds good. It's 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 excellent songwriting. 
But also, it's an incredible downer of an opener. (laughs) Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The point of this song is that we will never have creative freedom and we are living a life of of, uh, falsity and illusion. Get out of the theater, kids. This isn't for you. Uh, so in the water here, Dolan's like sinks to the bottom and he's like surrounded by coral. And here we get uh, extensive use of that. I apologize if this is not exactly the correct uh, way to describe this, but it's I think what would be called a solarization effect. It's where like the colors are all uh, weirdly inverted. It's like sort of saturated and has opposite kinds of contrast intensities of what the original image would be. Um, I think I read that that part of this was done because like they shot some underwater scenes um, somewhere out actually in the ocean, but there had just been a hurricane. And so the water was really cloudy <laughs> and uh, so they didn't look right. And so then they ended up having to reshoot things in a swimming pool. And then they used this solarization technique to kind of cover that up. Uh, and it clearly at the time they must've thought, yeah, this looks so psychedelic and cool, <laughs> but it, it kind of, it wears out its welcome pretty quick. But anyway, down there in the water, like Mickey, he sinks down and then mermaids come to his rescue, apparently. Well, rescue or doom, because, uh, you know, depending upon the mythology that we're talking about here, uh, okay. Think about the movie hook, you know, those, those mermaids, they, they, they rescued Peter Pan. However, uh-huh. you think about the other kinds of mermaids where they're luring you deeper and deeper into the water right. to ultimately, uh, you know, uh, make you drown and then consume your flesh. So uh, <laughs> it could be yeah. either. It could be either one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we see one of the mermaids. It appears to be resuscitating Mickey with mouth to mouth. Hook style. Peter Pan. (laughs) Yeah. But then the solarization departs and we can see them clearly again. And the water in the foreground is revealed to be not real water or not water that they're in, but only a fish tank in front of the camera with the mermaid and Mickey behind. And in fact, the mermaid is no longer a mermaid. It's just a regular woman with legs and everything. And she's (laughs) kissing Mickey on the mouth. Then she walks away from him, revealing they're in some kind of weird apartment. This might have been... Correct me if I'm wrong here, Seth. This apartment might have been like a standard part of the monkey's TV set. That's what it looks like. It's clearly not the exact same setup, but I, I think they're at least trying to um, either reuse the set or make us feel, hey, we're back in the TV show for a moment. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that was intentional. Okay, so it's kind of like that. It's like an apartment that's like the monkey set, except it has like barbering equipment. There are people in these swiveling barber chairs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and the rest of the monkeys are there too. And then the lady, she kisses all of them in sequence. She kisses Mickey, then Michael Nesmith, then Peter Tork, uh, then Davy Jones. And Davy Jones is last. He's in front of this big orange stained glass window with seagulls screaming outside. And after this, she goes to the door looking kind of bored and unimpressed, and she's going to leave the leave the apartment. But they ask her for a verdict first. <laughs> uh, I guess this was like a, a kissing competition. And she's like, eh, even. <laughs> <laughs> None of you is better than the other. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then things start getting really wild. Uh, there's another musical number that is credited as Diddy Diego or the war chant. And this is sung by the monkeys to the rhythm of the, I don't know what this is originally called, but the, the hello operator song, the, mm-hmm. uh, like the children's children's, you know, uh, schoolyard rhyme. 
And so I, I'm not going to read all the lyrics, but some of the salient ones are, it starts with, hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know, we love to please a manufactured image with no philosophies. <laughs> and then later in the song, it says, you say we're manufactured to that. We all agree. So make your choice and we'll rejoice in never being free. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. We've said it all before. The money's in. We're made of tin. We're here to give you more. <laughs> And uh, as they're singing this, the screen you're watching is filling up with miniature TV screens that I think are showing you different scenes of the movie you're about to watch. So they're all cutting in TV screens, showing you stuff that hasn't happened in the movie yet, but will. Um, most of this stuff is silly in nature until the last screen pops up, which happens to show uh the, the execution of Nguyen Van Lem, which was this important event in the in the history of the Vietnam War. It was like the summary execution of a Viet Cong officer in Saigon in February 1968 in a photo that was captured uh, by the Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams, but also was captured on uh, by a film TV camera and became like this really important image in the American anti-war movement. Obviously, this is unbelievably tonally jarring on purpose. Mm -hmm. And then the film gives way to this overwhelming montage of war and violence imagery, just like bombs exploding and weaponry and, uh, and war photography. And the monkeys, uh, do like a cheerleading chant of give, give me a W, give me an A, give me an R to spell war. Uh, so it's like clearly this incredibly, sharp critique of the Vietnam War, making it look um, cl clearly intended to make it look uh, barbarous and immoral. And then it cuts straight from that to a goofy trench warfare skit. I don't know how to explain Like, it's, <laughs> it's I, I can't think of anything else like this. It's so strange. Incredibly strange. And I mean, there is humor to it, but almost the humor is the existence of humor in such a dire situation like that. Yeah. Like, like they are making genuine jokes, but I think the joke ultimately is that they are joking in this war scene when it is not something that should be joked about, which is yeah. kind of double layer fascinating. Yeah. So the trench warfare scene is like a parody of a World War Two movie. Uh, and this will come up again and again. Like I said, there's like there are all these scenes in the movie that are parodies of sort of square uh, movie and TV genres. They're parodies of Westerns, uh, parodies of war movies, uh, parodies of sports movies. And uh, so the, the World War II movie scene has like these gags about helmets, like Mickey doesn't want to wear his helmet, which actually seems kind of thematically significant given the opening. Um, and, uh, and then Peter, I think, or at least or maybe multiple of the other monkeys like run out across the, the, the disputed zone between the trenches to retrieve a different helmet for Mickey to wear. And right. eventually that ends with them like fighting a football player who keeps tackling them, but they steal his football helmet and come back and give it to Mickey. It's beautiful in many ways. And in many ways, it's making these connections between um, warfare and sports and the violence and the one-upsmanship and this like push and pull and conflict between us and them. And it's it's fascinating and beautiful and also very nonsensical and silly. It's it's yeah. odd. Uh, and then it transitions straight from that to a concert scene where this is just like a 
it starts off just kind of like a straight concert scene with the band playing on stage. They're playing their instruments and singing in front of a crowd. And um, the song in this scene is the Mike Nesmith song, Circle Sky, written and sung by Mike Nesmith. Uh, the whole band is playing on stage in front of an audience of screaming young fans, fans shown shrieking and applauding with such intensity. It looks almost more like pain and fear than happiness. Well, let's, let's throw in one bit of uh, context here, which I'm please correct me if I'm not getting this completely correct. But this is kind of like the um, the series of images that I remember. So um. the four monkeys, they are trying to like breach this like cave or whatever you know in the war scene still so we're still we're still yes. picturing war and when they get up there you know they're doing things they throw a grenade in they, they charge in as if they're about to attack and that's the direct transition into the scene you just mentioned of, of yes. them at their concert right so do they have this antagonistic feeling towards their live shows do they see their their concerts as a battle and their audience as like an enemy that must be bested that they that, that this is this is this is conflict this is war between them and this screaming horde that is their fan base it's odd that would make sense given what happens at the end of this thing because well True. first of all let's talk about circle sky the song and then we yes. can talk about how the scene finishes this is a very weird and interesting song i'd say it's another one of my favorites in the soundtrack uh rhythmically it's built around a bo diddly beat you know bump a dump a dump a dump bump but it also has this strange descending chromatic scale part after the verses that kind of reminds me of um uh the riff in pink floyd's interstellar overdrive mm. and it's uh it, it's a it's a weird sounding song it's a lot more rock than most of uh the other monkey songs i can think of if that makes sense Definitely. I mean, this is a this is a Nesmith, and um, one thing that Nesmith is credited as inventing. And once again, no one invented anything. We're all building off each other's influences, et cetera, et cetera. Right, yeah. But one thing people give Nesmith credit for is inventing the rock country genre. That melding, you know, something that we would see later with like the Birds and um, oh, Wilco, Langurito Brothers. Exactly. Exactly. He's given credit for that, which um, these early Monkeys songs definitely kind of hint towards. And then he gets really into it later. Um, this is just a quick bonus recommendation. There's a series of three solo albums from Mike, Mike Nesmith that uh, I think you would love, Joe, but I think everyone would love. 1970 Magnetic South, 1970 Loose Salute, 1971 Nevada Fighter. All three are this vibe. And mm. so if anyone likes this song and the way this is going, that this is like a little hint at where Nesmith is headed next. And he put out three albums in a row that are all this vibe and are all incredible. I would say, yeah, and even this may be a very strange comparison, but I would say if you loosen all of the bolts on this type of music significantly, mm. you end up with the meat puppets. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. No, it's 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 incredible song making. It's um, Mike Nesmith. I'm a huge fan of his. I really, really love what, what he does. And this is a great example of it. And uh, this whole scene is just filmed beautifully as well. Just this this whole like war into concert. And then are you ready to go into what it goes into next? Well, yeah. So they sing the song and it's it's a great musical number. But at the end of the song, the audience, which again is is mostly teenage girls, they assault the stage attack the band and apparently kill them right. except it reveals that the band are not flesh and blood uh, like they are ripped to pieces by the audience 
revealing that they are actually just puppets and mannequins. They were phony the whole time. <laughs> mm. But I do want to dwell for a second on how, like, it's interesting the way the movie really focuses on the intensity of the the feeling in the audience for the band. And I don't know how exactly this was filmed. Like if they filmed a real, a real audience for a, a monkey's mm-hmm. concert, or if these were just actors, you know, asked to portray uh, screaming, I, I really don't know what they did here, but you can compare it certainly to uh, live footage of real audiences reacting to the Beatles or any very popular band. And it just reminds me that I, I love music, but however much I love music now, there really is no way for me to access the kind of excruciating passion I had for my favorite bands when I was a teenager. There's like a teenage relationship with music that uh, that doesn't come back no matter how hard you try, you know, like the, the way that you would just scream for a band at that age. And, and like the physical output, like especially if uh, like, again, you're, you're in your young teenage years, you're going to a metal show, a punk show, a hardcore show, and that physical feeling you get of being amongst your peers jostling and being in a pit and all that stuff. I can't imagine doing that anymore. <laughs> like yeah. not, not yeah. for a second, you know, I'm middle aged. There's not a yeah. chance. Yeah. But at least in my memory, I strongly identified with the audience in the scene. It's like, I remember yeah. that feeling of like caring about a band, even a band that maybe years later I would think was silly, caring this much that is just overwhelming passion. It's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad music has that ability. And yeah, you're right, though. I, th- I think teenagers connect to it in a perfectly teenage way. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Oh, but from here, it goes on to all kinds of other weird stuff. We get like a channel surfing montage where we see like a disembodied hand clicking a remote control. Uh, I don't think I even realized there were remote controls at this point. Right. Um, uh, but like clicking a remote and we see on the TV screen, it like cuts between commercials that highlight American consumerism. We get bits of Bible movies and stuff. There's one moment where it's a Bella Lugosi movie. I don't know what movie this is from. I didn't look it up, but uh, it's where Bella Lugosi is talking to some guy and the other guy says, sounds like a bunch of supernatural baloney to me. And Bella replies, supernatural, perhaps baloney, perhaps not. This uh, moment has a very prominent place on the album soundtrack. This, this, this Bella Lugosi quote. And yeah. uh, I love it every time. <laughs> uh, but then we go to another very memorable scene. It's the uh, Mickey in the desert scene where we get Mickey Dolan's lost in the desert, wandering around shirtless, thirsty. He comes across a Coke machine in the middle of the desert, but it malfunctions and won't give him his Coke. I found this scene very funny. Yes. Um, he's like fighting the machine. And then later in the scene, it becomes a parody of Lawrence of Arabia with like an Arabian horseman riding over the sand dunes. And then, Seth, did you want to describe this part? Sure. Uh, this is a moment we we referenced earlier that genuinely made me laugh out loud just yesterday watching this. When um, the horseman rides up over the dunes, comes all the way up to uh, Mickey. Mickey is confused, perhaps a, a little apprehensive, a little, a little worried. And he goes, psst. And he's like, what? And then he gets real close. He goes, psst. And then there's a big like caption on the screen that just says, <laughs> and <the> then, subtitle <laughs> yes and then he just rides off and that's it that's the end and i believe mickey once again goes what <laughs> yeah um but then there so after that there's a part where an italian tank drives up right the driver gets out of the tank goes up to mickey and confirms he is american that he only speaks italian i think but americano and mickey confirms and then the tank driver gleefully surrenders to Mickey. And then we basically get to watch this huge train of soldiers that are like all of the Axis powers lining up to surrender to the monkeys. It's so strange. What? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, oh, then finally Mickey gets in the tank and uses it to shell the Coke machine, which I laughed out loud at. Uh, you know, who wasn't laughing was Coca-Cola. They got mad and actually requested that this be taken out of the film. But uh, not too long afterwards, Coca-Cola actually bought the production company and the studio that made this film. So mm -hmm. then they didn't mind so much. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, let's see, uh, after this, let's, what happened? Oh, it segues into another musical number, a not so great scene where the monkeys are like hanging out dressed in Arabic clothing and surrounded by belly dancers. And this is to accompany the Peter Tork song, Can You Dig It? 
which is set to, I don't know what you call this genre, but it was like American psychedelic rock music of the 60s that was supposed to be inflected with, I think, like an Eastern sound, I believe. Right, right. Uh, yeah, when, when all of the white rock and roll musicians bought a sitar and didn't know how to play it. It was that era. Yeah. yeah. No no um, offense to George Harrison. I'm sure he was doing it better than most. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but th- this one feels, I don't know, this is not, I think, one of the better musical numbers in the movie. Um, it, it feels like a little music video interlude, but one yeah. without as much meaning as the previous two, Circle Sky and Porpoisong. Yeah. Uh, uh, no offense to the belly dancers, though. They do great. And we get, For sure. you know, belly cam and all that. Um, <laughs> but then we uh, we transition to another genre parody, this time a Western uh, featuring Terry Gar in this scene, where in the middle of the scene here, Mickey uh, gets fed up and walks off set, literally tearing a hole in the painted backdrop. <laughs> and this is the first of many scenes in the movie where the fourth wall not only breaks, but the monkeys like argue with the director and with the script and express <laughs> dissatisfaction with the creative direction of the movie. <laughs> Um, and, and I think this, this thing, I don't know if it's happened already in, in other movies before this, but I feel like this will be a sort of copied in comedy movies that follow like movies where people break the fourth wall and start arguing with the director. It, right. I wonder if it comes from this. Yeah. Great point. I mean, this is pretty early on 1968 is pretty early in the history of cinema for, uh, things to still be established. Like, like for example, this is a complete tangent, but something I learned recently, Joe, do you know where the very first fart in American cinema was? I do not know. Blazing Saddles. Ah. That's how okay. long it took to get a fart in American cinema. That's really funny. Well, I'm what so year was long. Bla- what year was Blazing Saddles, by the way? You know, let's look it up. These, these are just dumb facts in my head. Let's find out. Uh, because Blazing I was Saddles. thinking of Blazing Saddles is doesn't Blazing Saddles have a scene where the, the actors start arguing with the director? They do. And that was 1974. So okay. perhaps Blazing Saddles was at least in part influenced by, if not this film, other things that were happening around this film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's just something that's commonly in the air in the 60s and 70s. It's changing. Yeah. Changing views about the the role of the artist and understanding film as a medium to to be critiqued from a from a from a step back i don't know it must have been Um, fun though that at that time you still could do things that were firsts that things felt still unexplored like it was the wild west no pun intended that you could just kind of do something and have it be the first time it ever happened on screen oh yeah and i wanted to mention so there are these scenes where they argue with the director and in one of these scenes later you see Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson as themselves like walk on screen and start arguing with Peter Tork and stuff. It's amazing because you immediately recognize Jack Nicholson. Like it's, you know, Jack Nicholson is iconic, of course, and no one looks like Jack Nicholson except Jack Nicholson. Like he is, he's a legend. He's an icon. From what I've heard, Dennis Hopper is also in this scene but I have never been able to spot him. But then again, I also couldn't spot Annette Funicello, so that's not saying much. <laughs> I, I did not spot uh, Dennis Hopper either, so I don't know where he is in there. But there's but I a do, lot I do going love this on. scene, though. It's so, it's so beautiful. Like, yeah. and just everything that's happening in this scene, this, this is the diner scene, correct? The later scene where they're they're arguing with the with uh, the director, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, but let's see other things in the movie. We've already mentioned that the Davy Jones boxing with Sonny Liston scene. 
Um, there is, uh, there's the, you're the dummy theme. There, this is a recurring thing in the movie where the monkeys kind of have a dispute about which one of them is the dummy and they decide Peter is the dummy. He's always the dummy. But in fact, Peter in the end is revealed to be the one with wisdom. Right. Uh, and, uh, this gives, uh, give, it goes into another one of the musical numbers, a, a song called As We Go Along, written by Carol King and Tony Stern. Um, I don't know who's singing this one. It sounds like a female voice. So it could be Carol King singing, uh, but I'm, I don't know for sure. This one's kind of a, a hopeful sounding hippie ballad. Um, almost kind of reminds me of the vibe of like, uh, both sides now. Um, and uh, we see Peter Tork wandering through landscapes of snow, flowers, forests, rocky beaches. It's like a landscape video. <laughs> uh, but then this transitions straight into a montage of advertising billboards. And then we go into the factory scene where the monkeys are touring a factory. What does this factory make? I, I think it makes <laughs> shapes. That's right. what we see. Yeah. Uh, and something that looks like V8 juice that we see guys like coming. It's coming out of spouts and guys are drinking it. And uh, the foreman giving them the factory tour explains that soon everything will be automated. And then the only work left to humanity will be figuring out how to amuse itself. And he <laughs> ominously comments that we should be careful what we wish for. We're getting closer to that every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they, uh, then the monkeys, they like somehow from the factory, they get, they walk into a giant toupee. And they are like being, I think they're being ordered to film a commercial for something having to do with the toupee. Like the, this is the dandruff scene. I, right. Can you explain this, Seth? What, what's going uh, on? I mean, first of all, how the transition from the factory to the dandruff happens, I'm not entirely sure. There, there, there's a few really great transitions where you can kind of like see the A to the B. I'm not sure if I can connect to this one. <laughs> but uh -huh. so we have a, a giant and I mean enormous pile of fake uh, large scale hair. And the four monkeys dressed all in white and the director is yelling at them and commanding them, no, roll around, roll around, wrap yourself up in there. You're dandruff, you're dandruff, yeah, get, get in, in there. there, get in the hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then um, I, I think once again, we see another um, example of you're my puppets. Just do this stupid thing so I can hurry up and film it. We can move on with our lives. I need you to just do what I'm saying. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to have any commentary. Just roll around in there. Get in there. <laughs> Uh, and then we get a like zoom out where the hair is revealed to be the hair of Victor Mature, the uh, the Hollywood actor, the like Hollywood leading man who's got very nice looking hair, very well quaffed. And uh, and his hair is being vacuumed. Was this a common hair grooming procedure in the 60s to vacuum your hair? News to me. <laughs> I've never is. heard of it, but okay. So his hair is being vacuumed, and then the monkeys get sucked up into the vacuum. Uh, and then somehow in this whole sequence, Davy gets separated. And then we get another musical number that's completely different from anything that's come before, but I think is really good. Mm -hmm. Davy finds himself alone on a soundstage and begins a wonderful musical number that is visually dazzling by relying on such a simple visual effect which is editing between two takes 
that each have completely inverted colors. So in one take, it's a white set with Davy Jones wearing a black suit and a white shirt. And in the other, all the colors are the opposite. And they cut back and forth between these two. And the effect is fantastic. Also, Davy's dancing is really good. Uh, and he's got a, a dancing partner, and she's really good, too. I was trying to find out who his dancing partner was here, but I'm not sure who it was. I, uh, I can say this in many situations throughout this film. If you look into who the um, female cast member is, it's quite often someone's wife or girlfriend that that uh, happened okay. many times. Like Jack Nicholson's girlfriend at the time was in this. Um, I believe a couple of the monkeys wives were in this. Like that, 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 that was a common thread throughout this film was friends of the monkeys. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but then coming to the song itself, this is the one written by Harry Nilsson called daddy's song, which, uh, it, the song sounds kind of cheerful. It sounds like it's like a classic, uh, classic Broadway show tune, but actually it is quite sad. It's a sad narrative about a young boy who remembers looking up to his father, but then his father abandons his family and he tells about how his mother didn't know how to explain it to her son. And then he reflects on how he thinks he might never tell his own children. Um, it is a, it, once again, just like a very strange and much darker and more thoughtful song than you would guess from the sound of it or from its context in the film. And uh, Nielsen actually did this multiple times for them. Um, another really great one is a song called Cuddly Toy. Another one that has this kind of like soft shoe Broadway vibe to it. It's from their album Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones Limited. And once again, it's got <laughs> Davy Jones up front being this kind of like corny dude with like a a, a sad undertone like it, it's um that they, they really had a good thing going at this point and do you think that there was a deliberate metaphor here of separating the uh the one monkey that did stand out that was different from the others he's one british monkey compared to the three american monkeys oh uh, yes he's the song and dance man they're all hippies like like mm. i wonder if there was this kind of uh, intentional division or if perhaps it's as simple as like davy jones being like hey i want i want a song <laughs> you know <laughs> give me a chance to get up there and do my thing too that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, uh, but it actually does connect to something that uh, I was talking about with Rachel. So she actually she had more knowledge of the monkeys growing mm -hmm. up than I did. So going into this movie, she knew more about the monkeys than me. And she pointed out how the movie kind of messes with the character of each monkey. So like Davy, the cute one, is the fighter in the movie. He's the guy who's boxing and we constantly see him actually doing like doing karate and trying to fight people. Mm hmm. Peter, the supposed dummy or the kind of like the naive one, is the wise, enlightened one in this movie. Uh, Mickey, the funny one, is shown having very like dark moods and is placed in a very dark context. And then the one the odd one out here is kind of Mike. I'm not sure how Mike fits this, like playing with the character. He does still seem pretty serious in the movie. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Uh, but that seemed interesting to me that the movie takes time to single each one out uh, at various points and then kind of invert them. For sure. And yeah, you know, I think you're completely right that Mike Nesmith doesn't quite get the subversion. I don't think anything really happens to him. Maybe it's the fact that in general, he's seen as like the leader of the monkeys. And in this film, he doesn't really lead them at any point. Like he is in many ways just kind of a passive character, but that's, that's a stretch. That's me really reaching for it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Now, there are a bunch of other sequences in the movie. There's the horror movie sequence with like an eye behind a mirror. That's great stuff. Yeah. Like Davy sees an eye behind a mirror in the bathroom and then he tries to show it to other people, but they can't see it. Uh, there's uh, that leads into a kind of go-go dancer freak out scene set to a song called Do I Have to Do This All Over Again? <laughs> that title's kind of on the nose for the, <laughs> the themes. Uh, there's also this whole thing with like the monkeys searching for quote the answer and there is a scene where like a guru inspires Peter to reflect on how we cannot tell reality from illusion. And then uh, when we get to the ending, we actually return to the beginning. Seth, I know you wanted to talk about the ending. Do you do you want to take this here? Sure. Um, so at the end, um, we actually at first aren't even sure that we're re-entering the beginning again because um, it starts with basically all the characters from all the scenes we've seen all the way up until now pursuing the four monkeys. They're chasing them. Um, so some of the characters are uh, feeling quite you know antagonistic towards them, chasing them around, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually we do start to put it together that, oh, they're back on the bridge again. 
And we're basically seeing the same scene from the beginning, except that we just have context now. We see who the chaser is. The camera is letting us see this mob behind them. So in the beginning, if you're just watching it without context, it feels like the monkeys committed suicide on their own, that they felt the need that they were like, the monkeys are over, let's go. And they just jump off the bridge. Now with this extra context, we can see that they were being pursued, that they were being forced to do this, that in many ways, we, the audience, or perhaps society at large, forced them to jump, that we ended the monkeys not the monkeys. The monkeys, mm. they were just they were just dealing with what we gave them. That they they were reacting to our uh, uh, pursuits and anger and whatever. The, 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 maybe even our, our need for the monkeys caused the monkeys to have to end. But but yeah, it's it's that it's our fault. We ended the monkeys, not the monkeys. It's our fault, and it's the the creators of the monkeys' fault because it's like the filmmaking apparatus is also chasing them. All of For the sure. actors and everything. It's everyone's so, fault except the monkeys. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and so like they jump off, and but we get a return of the porpoise song. Mm-hmm. So there is this this idea of the freedom of the porpoise, and you wonder if it, maybe it's going to be a happy ending where they actually do become like the porpoise, and they you know when they hit the water, maybe they swim out to sea and become free on their own. But in instead, when we last see them in the water, and then it is you're teased with this idea of them becoming like wild animals, you know, marine mammals with freedom. But instead, we re- realize that they are in fact in a fish tank on the back of a truck being lorded over by Victor Mature, this like <laughs> this devilish demiurge figure who's like sitting there in a director's chair, smoking a pipe and grinning wickedly as they are, as they are carried away on a trailer, uh, presumably to be, uh, I don't know, like shelved and archived or something. Right. Or maybe put in a zoo so people can, can, can continue to stare at the monkeys, you know, yeah. you know, it would be a fun art project that would actually be, relatively easy um think of this as like a museum art installation where you walk through and you see like those little like side screening rooms where they're showing like an art film that you can sit down and watch for a minute and then get up and walk out mm-hmm. you could easily turn this movie into an infinite loop that they mm, are pursued yeah. and then when they jump you just seamlessly edit that back into the original jumping off of the bridge and it just pr- goes again and again and again this could very easily be an infinite loop of a movie and uh i'd love to see that i wonder how many times i can make it through <laughs> that's a great idea yeah um organize it seth you put it together it. get the rights <laughs> I'll, I'll set aside uh some, some gallery space and uh yeah <laughs> all right well i think that is all i have to say about head seth do you have anything else uh, you want to talk about before we wrap up here uh, no, but I will say, if anyone, if this is their first introduction to the monkeys, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the audience who are very familiar with the monkeys and some that have never seen anything from them. I genuinely do recommend several monkeys albums. But here's like the big thing to keep in mind: the monkeys actually barely existed, like in the in like the grand timeline of life when they were having like a a, a successful artistic output. It was such a small window. The mm-hmm. first album they put out was in 1966 this album is in 1968 and in that window they released one two three four five six albums (laughs) and they had to already go through an entire upheaval of people thinking that they're frauds and fighting back for creative control that whole window of 66 to 68 is just two years and yet it encompasses this whole enormous situation that just it, it, it it's it's um 
it's similar to when you look at the Beatles and you see how much they accomplished in their short time as a band because they're releasing more than one album a year. In 67, they released three albums. In 68, they released two. Oh, I'm talking about the Monkees again, by the way. So uh, (laughs) I I do think it's important to look into them as just a musical act. And I will say, personally, my three favorite albums of theirs are, I mentioned it briefly, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited from 1967, the Birds, the Bees, and the Monkeys from 1968, that one's kind of their wide album because uh, they all had their own very independent ideas of what they wanted their next album to be. Mm. So they all kind of split off, produced their own things, and then cobbled it back together like a quilt, which is pretty fun. Does it and have then, tape loops? <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then in 1968, uh, Head, of course. I think that's also uh. a wonderful uh, album, which there are two versions of. Both are good. But the original version, the one Jack Nicholson made, that's that's the the preferred version <laughs> and hey folks if you would like to hear seth talk about music like this all the time you can subscribe to his other podcast rusty needles record club seth do you want to pitch the show uh what's the deal with rusty sure. needles record club i love to um it's 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 an old style podcast back in the days pre-advertising pre uh um gosh what else do podcasts have now pre-celebrities Pre uh, true crime, none of that stuff. It's the old style. We just sit around and chit chat for a while, and then it's over. And um, much like this show, which I really appreciate. There, there's a big difference between old style podcast and new style podcast. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Rusty Needles Record Club is a show where uh, it's like a book club, but for music. Each episode is a different album. Me and my co-host, we listen to it, we talk about it, we break it down based on facts, based on our feelings, and then we give the album a review. But ultimately, it's just a play for people who love music to kind of get some music conversation in their ears to have like a nice relaxed parasocial relationship with some other people if you don't happen to have uh, other friends around you that you can talk about things like what your favorite monkeys album is i'll do that for you we'll chit chat (laughs) the show is rusty needles record club and there's an apostrophe before the s on needles right exactly this is Rusty Needle, he owns the record club. (laughs) Yes. There you go. Wherever (laughs) podcasts are found. Yep, yep. Look it up. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Seth. It has been a a real pleasure to to have you back on the show again, and uh, let's do it again in the future. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, that does it for today. Huge thanks again to Seth Nicholas Johnson for joining us. Uh, If you uh, are new to the show and would like to check us out, why not subscribe to Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts. We offer a variety of different things on each day of the week. Uh, Our core episodes, usually about science or science and culture in some way, are on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we read listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form scripted series called The Artifact or The Monster Fact or uh, even new forms of the short scripted show are emerging. On Fridays, we do this show, Weird House Cinema, where we just talk about a weird film. Good or bad, well-known or obscure, we do them all as long as they're strange in some way. Uh, And then on Saturdays, we run an episode from The Vault, an older episode of the show. Uh, let's see. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.